We are finishing up the book of Ezra, as I said beforehand, and it's covering mixed marriages. As I told you last time, think biblically about life. I beg of you, don't spend so much of your life listening to the world, the traditions. Follow the Bible. The Bible never refers to mixed marriages as different ethnicities or races. Never. It refers to mixed messages, or rather mixed marriages, as people of different religions, those who follow the true God and those who do not. Uh, And I will tell you this, just putting it bluntly, if you've made it so far here, way to go. Because oftentimes when you look at other commentaries that folks study Ezra, it's not often. They normally look at the book and go, yeah, I think I'm going to move on to another portion of scripture to preach. Now, that's not way to go me, that's way to go you. The fact is, is that we need to be understanding the scriptures. It's, this, in particular, is one of the hardest, most unpopular portions of the Bible. These people are repenting, and what are they doing? They're sending their wives and their children away. Some of you, maybe many of you, come from broken families, and you go, that doesn't look like godliness to me. Well, hold on a second. I would tell you this. The reason why I chose Ezra was not only because the elders said, let's study somewhere in the Old Testament. It's because, are there portions of Scripture we should just stay away from? No, we see in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate for some work. All work. So, we don't, we don't skip over portions. We want to cover the whole counsel of God. And I would tell you this, personally, if you're in the pews and you've struggled and you're ready to move on to a different book, that's okay. But I would also encourage you in this way, one of the worst things you have going against you as far as being a believer is you happen to be an American believer. <laughs> and we're used to getting things done like now, yesterday. And so when we open up scripture and we don't have this sort of like great application, then we go, well, I'll move on. Don't do that. You have to fight it. You have to pray. You have to keep reading. I mean, some of us might only get uh, in the word once a week, and that's Sunday morning. How in the world could you ever think that you have a, a growing Christian life? You don't. You can only imagine eating once a week what that would do for you. So be encouraged. Uh, We're finishing up Ezra. We're going into Nehemiah next week. Let's talk about this mixed marriage situation of Ezra 9. Don't don't lose heart, though. Keep working. First off, once again, it says in the notes, mixed marriage, it was a religious problem. It was not racial. It never has been. It's those who follow the one true God and those who do not. Malachi 2 also sheds a little bit more note on this situation. Many of these forbidden marriages were a result of social advancement. Men who abandoned their Jewish wives to go marry unbelieving Gentile daughters of wealthy landowners. Guess what that happens then? You get the land eventually. It was great wickedness on the part of these Jewish men. And then there's one other caveat I should mention. Perhaps, it's hard to do, it's hard to understand fully the Hebrew in Ezra. It's not It's not that easy. Perhaps this is not actually even a call to divorce, but separation from illicit unions. Let me explain. The word divorce actually in the Hebrew is not used. 
but rather a term describing those living in sin in common law marriages. And what Ezra perhaps might be saying is you need to get away from that woman, send her away. Um, and then secondly, also the term foreign women, it's, it's the same term in Hebrew for adulteress. In Proverbs 2.16, when it talks about being delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. You see that word adulteress? Same word as foreign women. So don't think these were just godly women, godly Gentile women. No, they were wicked, and so were the Jewish men here as well. So ultimately, what we're going to see in chapter 9 and chapter 10 today is genuine repentance is taking place. Something is happening in the hearts of the people. They don't have to stir it up. It just happens. The Spirit is falling on His people and giving them a spirit of repentance. Uh, I like what one of the commentators says. He says this, The Bible is clear that there is both genuine and false repentance. Twice Pharaoh told Moses, I have sinned, but he did not truly repent. Esau felt bad and wept over giving away his birthright, but he did not truly repent. Judas felt remorse, big difference, remorse over betraying Jesus and even said he had sinned, but he did not repent. If we want to be right before God, we must make sure that our repentance is genuine. Genuine repentance involves heartfelt sorrow before God for our sins and prompt action to correct them. And we're going to take a look at this today. It's not a comprehensive list, but today we're going to see nine marks of, Jew, of Gentile, not Gentile, nine marks of genuine repentance applying to Gentiles and Jews. Nine marks. And you'll see this kind of come out in the text. As far as an outline, if you need that sort of thing, you can find that helpful. We'll see in verse one through four, Shekania's proposal. Verse five through eight, the assembling of the people. Verse 9 through 15, the cooperation of the people. And verse 16 through 44, we'll see the completion of this repentance, what takes place. This is the word of God. Verse 1, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Two weeks ago, I spoke about confession, and uh, I didn't really explain it as well as I was hoping, and I'm going to do a little bit more of that today. I like what one of the uh, Puritans said in a very sort of picturesque way, confession. He defines it, confession is the soul's vomit, which is the hardest kind of medicine, but healthiest. This the devil knows, and therefore he holds the lips close that the heart may not disburden itself by wholesome evacuation. Let me give you some general guidelines about confession. First off, confession is not the same as repentance. That's important to note. Many times they, they intersect, and I would say most times they intersect. They're related to each other. Confession really is agreeing with God about our sin. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A believer confesses. He agrees with God that what I've done is wrong. That's what happens. It's the gift of God, like faith is, but we confess these things. Repentance, on the other hand, repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. 
the, the Greek term is metanoia, and that one's even more, it, it's not just a change of mind, it's change of mind that results in action. It's spirit-driven, but it's nevertheless an active verb there. Confession, secondly, should be made to God and to one another. James 5, 16, it says, confess your sins to one another so you may be healed. Now, I'm going to specifically look up here so you won't think I'm talking to you. But if the Spirit should draw it home, take it. A believer confesses to others. If you ever hear a believer say, you know, I, I don't apologize. It's not what I do. Then I would say, you very well may be looking at an unbeliever. Because a believer apologizes. You see, the first John is very clear on this. Those, we, we who cannot forgive others, we ourselves have not been forgiven. We ought to be very quick to confess. Uh, this is what believers do. We don't always do it well, and some of us are better about it than others. I myself am not very good. Thirdly, confession should be specific and thorough. We're not, we're not talking groveling when you, uh, you know, confess your sins to the Lord or confess your sins to others, but it should be specific. Try not to say things like, I'm sorry if I made you feel bad. You see, that two-letter word is a wonderful little word. And we love to use it when we don't want to take any ownership for what we've done. I'm sorry if I did that. Now, certain things are not as um, perhaps uh, on purpose as others. And yet, I'll tell you this, if you run me over with a car, you still ran me over with a car. But I didn't mean to. But it doesn't matter. See the point? Uh, so finally, public confession. There are times that Christians should publicly confess. Specifically, that's really required of public sins or public manifestations of private sins. We'll see that a little bit later. But in Galatians 2, Paul confronts Peter. What has Peter done wrong? He and Barnabas at one time had no problem eating pork sandwiches with the Gentiles and, and enjoying a good slab of bacon I'm going a little bit further than Scripture here, but the point of it is they were okay with that because Jesus had declared all foods clean, and it was all right. They could, they could eat with the Gentiles, but once the Judaizers showed up, what did Barnabas and Peter do? They backed off from the table and then began to sit only with the Jews. And what does Paul do? Does he take the Matthew 18 approach and confront him one-on-one? -on -one? No, publicly, to his face, he calls out Peter. Why are you holding these people to, to, to things that you can't even do, Peter? And Peter and Barnabas had to confess. What they were doing was wrong. It was hypocrisy. So glad the church doesn't do that anymore. Continuing on, what does Ezra do here? Let's look at the text. He weeps and casts himself down before the house of God. The grammar implies constant. He's falling down over and over and yet, if you will note, Ezra has done nothing wrong. He has not married a Gentile uh, woman. Uh, and yet, as I mentioned last time, there are times to identify with others' sins when confessing. We see that in Ezra 9, Daniel 9. Is it necessary? No, not at all. But Ezra is doing it for the moment because he knows that in some ways they were one body. When one part suffers, we all suffer. Christ himself identifies himself with transgressors in Isaiah 53. One other aspect, though. Ezra is trying to lead these people in repentance. 
He's not manipulating. He's leading them. What does this look like? What have you done? And so he's trying to show them this. So I would say the first aspect, and there's nine of these marks, but the first mark of genuine repentance, you'll see these people, they, they weep bitterly. Genuine repentance includes heartfelt sorrow for your sin before a holy God. Some of us don't weep as quickly, but there's a sorrow going on. What happens after Peter denies Jesus in Luke twenty two sixty two? 62? Peter went out, he got away from people, and he wept bitterly. Why is he so sad? Because he had denied his Lord. Now, just kind of as a caveat over here to perhaps put in file 13 in the back of your head, sin or temptation often relates to the idols of our heart. Peter spoke more than all the other 12 apostles combined. Did you know that? So, which might just mean he's an extrovert. Or it might mean he's got some pride as well. He wants people to think, to make, he wants to make himself look good. He also has an intense fear of man, and you'll see this uh, as he is um, denying Christ. Not saying that I wouldn't have a fear of man as well. My master has just gotten arrested, is about to be crucified. So, but the point of it is that be careful, folks. The temptations of Satan oftentimes go straight for the idols of your heart. And when that happens, you're going to be highly tempted to fall right into it. But genuine repentance includes heartfelt sorrow. These people are weeping. What have we done against God? Let's take a look at verse 2. And Shekaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Who is Shekaniah or Shekaniah? He seems to perhaps be their spokesman. Shekaniah himself has not married foreign women, but his dad has, his uncles have. Perhaps Shekaniah is even the result of one of these forbidden marriages. We don't know. The second aspect of genuine repentance, I think you see it. We have broken faith with our God. Genuine repentance sees the sin as ultimately against God. I have done this against the Lord Question, who said this? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. That's David, Psalm 51. And you go, wait a second, David murdered a man? He stole another man's wife? How can he say against you, you only have I sinned? Because ultimately, all sin begins and ends at the doorstep of our Father. 2 Corinthians 7.10 describes this sort of process of looking at sin correctly. He says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So the question you have to ask yourself regarding sin, and you feel sad about it, are you sad for what you have done against God? Are you sad because of the negative consequences that are now hitting you? Because if it's the latter, it's called remorse. It's ungodly. It's wicked. You're just sad that you got caught. Repentance is something very different. It realizes that this, what I've done, is just is against God. By the way, I'll give you a couple more in this, chat, in this verse too. We could do a whole sermon on this. Another aspect of genuine repentance, another point. Genuine repentance, number three, refuses to blame others for your sin. 
refuses to blame others for your sin. Notice what they said. We have been unfaithful marrying foreign women from the peoples of the land. Who did it? It's me. It's us. It reminds me just the opposite of a guy like Aaron, Moses' brother. In Exodus, you may be remembering what I'm thinking of, Exodus 32, where the people have made the calf, and Aaron is in, kind of in charge of this thing. And you're going, Aaron, what are you thinking? And that's ultimately what Moses says. What are you thinking? He says it this way. What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And you perhaps remember the response. Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. The gold, I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Genuine repentance refuses to blame others. I'm the problem. And then finally, number, number four, we'll see, he says, but even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. This is perhaps the more positive side. Genuine repentance hopes in God. It hopes in God, ultimately. Matthew Henry puts it this way, the sin that troubles us shall not ruin us. Whatever I have done, I can go straight to the Lord. I know I can. He hopes in God. It reminds me of Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I mean, you're not impressing God. So as a believer, we always hope in the Lord. We don't, we don't take sin lightly, but when we fall into that particular sin, we can repent because we know that the Lord will take us in. Verse three and four. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task. And the idea is it is your task, Ezra, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Number five, genuine repentance bears fruit in keeping with repentance. I know that's redundant. Genuine repentance bears fruit in keeping with repentance, which is Matthew 3, verse 8. John the Baptist looks at them and he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Are you repentant? Are you? There has to be fruit coming from it. And it's not because you have to conjure it up. It's because the Spirit, if he's really giving you repentance, it will produce fruit good fruit. This form of repentance, the genuine repentance asks, what does the Bible say? And then corrects course. Not perfectly, but it does it. Romans 8.13 puts it this way, and he's talking to believers. If you live according to the flesh, you're, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will, what? Live. There's life in that. So they tell Ezra, he says, make a covenant. That's not what he says. They say, cut a covenant. You see, covenants were cut. Cut a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children. We first see this in Genesis 15, where um, you've read it before, where God makes a unilateral covenant. It's not bilateral. It's not based upon Abraham. It's just based upon God. And what does he do? He has Abraham cut animals in half and cut birds in half, and you're like, how gross. No, it's, you're cutting a covenant. 
You see, the way it works is you would put these animal parts, I know this is gross, but it's true, cut the animal parts and put them on both sides, and then people would walk through that alleyway. Why would you do that? It would be a visual and sensory reminder Those cut animals will be me if I break this covenant. That's what it meant to cut a covenant. And that's what they're doing here. It's a a solemn promise. What's interesting is Ezra did not come up with this plan. Um, We see the people that come up with this plan. Let's cut a covenant. And they urge him to lead in it. They urge him to lead in a covenant that will send their wives and children away How is that good? Well, let's take a look at this. Malachi 2, God hates what? Divorce. God hates it. Is this plan of Shekinah approved by God? There are four points to consider. I think it will be helpful for you. Number one, we should really note this. Divorce was permitted in the Old Testament for things that are outside of what we hold to in the New Testament. We see in Deuteronomy 24.1, If a man's wife finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he could divorce her. So why so loose? What's the problem there? Well, remember, they asked him, Jesus, this in Matthew 19. They said, according to Moses, Moses commanded the people to send their wives away. And what does Jesus say? No, no. It hasn't been like that from the beginning to become one. It's because of what? Your hard hearts that Moses allowed or permitted you to divorce your wives. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying in the Old Testament, it was a mixed bag. You had some true believers of of Yahweh like Joshua and Moses, Caleb, and you had a whole lot of pagans that were part of Israel but were really not true believers. And so God had formed a way to allow, not just for the husband to get out of the marriage, but more importantly, really for the wife. Because when the wife, if the husband hates his wife and finds something unclean in her, and by the way, we don't know exactly what that is. It seems to be there was something about her that that just didn't square with the covenant relationship. Uh, She would receive a certificate of divorce so she could remarry. So it was actually a way to actually help the woman So divorce was permitted in the Old Testament in in differing ways than us. Uh, Number two, people always bring up, what about Ruth? You told us a couple of weeks ago you're going to talk to us about Ruth, and I will right here. (sighs) Wasn't Ruth a foreign woman that married an Israelite? Yes. But what we're referring to here, there is no indication that these wives were foreigners who followed the Lord and married godly Israelite men. The situation is this, Israelite men lusting after foreign pagan women and marrying them. So Ruth is a very different deal. The Lord took her in. I look forward to meeting her in heaven someday. Godly Moabite woman she was. Number three, this bothers me, Jeff. What about the children being sent away? Why would God do that? Well, remember, folks, much like today, although not as much, in ancient culture, moms stay with the kids we see that in the person of Ishmael. Ishmael, would, he went away with Hagar, did not stay uh, with Abraham. Now, there were other mitigating circumstances, but really that's the way it was in ancient culture. In particular, your kids stay with, your, uh, stay with the moms. One of the commentators puts it this way as a way to understand it. 
the religious influence of the mothers on their children was regarded as the stumbling block. To keep the religion of the Lord pure was the one and only aim of Ezra and the returned exiles. As a small minority group, these Jews lived in the Holy Land among a large population of influential people who were followers of various polytheistic religions. Against such larger numbers, they had to defend themselves and their religious identity. Thus, the drastic measures are understandable. One last thing to mention, then we'll keep going into it. Could this just be Ezra's lack of discernment? I mean, it doesn't say here in the scripture, and God was pleased with everything that Ezra did. It doesn't say that. And there are some commentators that debate. Perhaps Ezra's taking it too far. It's easy to play the armchair quarterback at this point. But I would say this. Nehemiah does not condemn Ezra, and they knew each other. There's no indications that he disagreed with him. Uh, Also, you have godly elders that agree with Ezra. And so I think at the end of the day, I think Ezra would admit to this. I don't like the situation. I, I think it's horrible that these men marry these women. And then some of them actually have kids from this. But let me take the lesser of the two evils. Remember, the greatest danger to the Jews is not anti-Semitism. The greatest danger to the Jews is not breaking up families. The greatest danger to the Jews was syncretism. That eventually you could not separate a Jew from a Gentile. They assimilated completely into the culture and they're no longer following the Yahweh. And what you have ultimately is no Jewish Messiah. And so they have to take extreme routes and that's what Ezra does. Verse five and six, then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as he had been, as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, who was the high priest, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. By the way, if you're interested in fasting, this is something called a complete fast. Most of the time when we fast, we just fast from food. Here, it's fasting from food and water. It's very rare. We see Moses do this, and the Ninevites do this as well. But I think the point is trying to show you here, Ezra is fasting in private. He's not simply fasting and mourning as a show for man to manipulate them. No, he's doing this all this privately. The only reason we know about it is the Spirit had uh, Ezra write it. Verse 7 through 9, And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. If you're wondering time frame, I'll tell you. This is December 458 BC. It's the early winter rains in Israel. Why are they trembling? Three reasons. Number one, the cold rain. For good reason, they're trembling. Number two, there's a prospect of sending away their wives. 
That would make you tremble. But thirdly, I think what you see here is repentance. People are trembling in their repentance before the God of Israel. It reminds me of another time in church history. If you're wondering, has anything like this happened in church history? Oh, it has. One of the guys named Dave Guzik writes a story about it. March 1859, there was actually a huge revival that hit the United States right before the Civil War. It's fascinating that the Lord should decide to save as many as he did right in the midst of the Civil War. It continued on in the South in the 1860s. But it also actually hit over in England. One million people were saved in Great Britain. The First Presbyterian Church of Ahogil, Northern Ireland, was one of the congregations. The crowds got so big that they had to dismiss for fear of the balcony collapsing. So they went outside, and it wasn't just a sermon, it was a, it was a church-wide repentance. Many of these people became believers for the first time. They went outside in the freezing rain out in the street. James McQuilkin preached to 3,000 people. Many under conviction of their sins fell on their knees onto that wet, muddy street, repenting before the Lord. Sixth point of genuine repentance. Genuine repentance submits to the Lord's discipline. If you will, he goes to the woodshed. He leans over because he knows a couple of things. He knows Genesis 6, 7. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And he also knows Romans 8, 28, that not some things, but all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, that he knows that this discipline is for my good. And he submits to it. At this point, we could talk about New Testament church discipline lined out very well in Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17, but you see it in real live time in 1 Corinthians 5. Remember I mentioned earlier, there, there's times that you should confess for, pri- for sins done privately that has public manifestations. There's a man in the city of Corinth that is having relations with his stepmother. And so Paul says, bring that man out publicly in love, much in the same way that you would cast Jonah over the boat onto the sea so that God can deal with him. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, don't miss this, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Throw him to the wolves so that God can deal with him. And is that the end of church discipline? I beg of you, no. The end of church discipline should always be about restoration, bringing him back. You see this in 2 Corinthians 2.6, where Paul is now encouraging the congregation of Corinth to say, turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul is saying, church discipline is over. He repented, and he did it publicly. Now bring him back. Bring him back. And some of you have gone through that, and it brings tears to your eyes for me even to mention it that God brought you back. And maybe it wasn't a public scene. Maybe it was private. But I am so thankful for the people that loved me and cared for me enough to confront me in my sin. I'm not talking about people that love to just thump folks in the chest. I'm talking about people that love you enough to lovingly come alongside and say, hey, I love you too much not to mention this. So genuine repentance submits the Lord's discipline. 
Verse 10 and 11, and Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. It's interesting, in the Hebrew, it reads a little bit different. When it says make confession, it actually, in the Hebrew, it says give praise. Give praise to the Lord, God of your fathers. And you say, well, why does it say confess? Well, there's reasons why. Joshua 7, 19. Some of you remember that story. Achan has now hidden some things in his tent. And Joshua and the men go out and fight and lose. And then Joshua is weeping before the Lord. And, and God says, get up. There's sin in the camp. And eventually, uh, God so works it out that Joshua is shown by God that it's Achan. And he says to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise. What does he mean? Confess. Tell me, he says, what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And so to put it like this, you give praise to God as you confess your sin. You're praising him because you're agreeing with God that what you have done is wicked, it's against the Lord, and the Lord loves to hear that little voice of you crying out to him saying, I am so sorry. That is so wrong. What have I done? And he tells them, separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Now, here's the procedure. Here's how it would go. If the people actually do this, and they will, the wives, they get a certificate to remarry. Strange, but that's what they would have back at that time. They would be given a certificate to remarry. Wives and their kids would go back to the wife's parents, his, her, her parents' house. And you're looking at that and you're going, well, it doesn't sound like it costs the, the dad anything. It doesn't cost the father anything. Oh, no, it does. He has to give the dowry back to the in-laws. It's going to cost him financially, as it should. Verse 12 through 15. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times with them, the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jezeel, the son of Tikva, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. So, note this. The people are not making excuses. Because Ezra's like, okay, let's deal with it. And the people are like, no, not now. <laughs> They're not making excuses. They're saying, this is going to take a lot of time. There's many people. It's a rainy season. We can't get it done in one or two days. Let's do it on the local level which was smart. Only four people oppose this. We don't know what they oppose. Are they opposing the harshness of the measure? Or are they opposing the delay in exacting the discipline? We don't know. It's open for conjecture. Um, but I will say this, the seventh point regarding genuine repentance, and I think you see it here. Genuine repentance fears the Lord and not man. You see, when it comes down to it, my unpopularity with man will not convince me not to repent. 
some of you, when you became believers, the first time you went home to tell your parents and you were kind of nervous because you're like, my parents thought I was a believer or maybe they never raised me in the Christian faith, but I have really become a believer for the first time. And you were a little scared because what you got in response. Your parents may have said something like, oh no, you were a believer at age four. Huh? what are you saying? And they, they could take it as an affront. Like, what are you saying about me? I haven't raised you right? Or, and if you deal with parents that are not believers at all, they'll look at you like you've joined a cult. Some of you know what I speak of. But the point of it is, it didn't, it didn't, you did it anyway. Maybe you didn't do it overnight, but eventually you're like, I need to talk to people about Jesus Christ because I don't want to be afraid of man. I want to fear the Lord. I love this uh, Malawi trip. Sounds like y'all came back just, just right as you should have because you saw lives change and you were bold with the gospel. And yet Mike Talley would be the first one to tell you, let's do it here. And you go, man, it's, but the fields don't seem to be as white for harvest. Doesn't matter. Jesus says the fields are white for harvest. We just don't get to pick and choose. So they're not going to be afraid of man. Verse 16 and 17. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of their father's houses, according to their father's houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. This took three months, folks, December 458 to March 457. Now, what's interesting in particular is this word examine. Uh, the, the word examine in the Hebrew means to search out. Are they trying to search out the foreign wives? Maybe, but maybe I would think they already knew that. Maybe, and I'm thinking it might be this, they're searching out to find out, is this wife willing to abandon her foreign gods? If she wants to stay with her foreign gods, she needs to leave along with the kids. And the reason why I say that is because I think I have biblical precedent for saying that because Ruth is a godly Moabite that is a follower of the one true God. So perhaps that's what the examination was about. We don't know. But in this list of offenders, and we're not going to read all of it. I'll read, have you read some of it for homework. List of offenders, we have 17 priests, six Levites, four singers and gatekeepers, 84 of the rest. There's one out of 270 of the Israelite population from Ezra 2. One out of 270? I don't understand. That seems incredibly small. Well, it, it could be a list of Jerusalem upper class engaging in the practice, and so they don't list them all. Or perhaps the Bible is true. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's perhaps why we have stories of Achan and Ananias and Sapphira perhaps showing us that a little sin in the congregation is not okay, that we just kind of allow it. I mean, you can imagine if you're new here to grace today and I were to say, well, folks, the elders have decided we're going to allow just a few selected spouses in this room to cheat on their wives. Just a few, not all of you. No, we're not pagans. Just a few of you. Any volunteers? No, these husbands are like, let me out of here. No, that would be awful. That would be great wickedness. 
No. The fact of the matter here at Grace, we would not allow that. Why? Because we love you too much. And we hope that you wouldn't allow me to do that as well. You see, the fact that these names are written down, and we've got many, they're written down for all eternity as a warning to us. As a warning to us. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands beware lest he fall. And maybe God in his grace gives us all these names to show us it could be your name. So we'll see. You can read on your own. I'm going to allow you to read verses 18 through 44 because we're really out of time. Um, they, what they do is they pledge. They pledge to put away their, their spouses, which means they gave their hand, uh, much in the same way you give your hand to shake on it. So that's this picture. They, they gave their hand. They pledged to put away their wives and any of them that had children. Um, and so what we see ultimately uh, you would think, take a look at verse 44. We'll just skip down to the very end and note what, what happens. And it's heartbreaking. The Bible does not hide uh, from the word, from the pain. Verse 44, all these had, foreign, had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. For those in here that are sinners... Does it ever bother you that your sin has affected your spouse or your kids? Or does it ever bother you when you look back at your past, the reason why you were so quick to fall into something? I'm not saying you're not responsible, but you fell into it is because you saw your dad do it all the time. You saw your mom do it all the time. Do you ever see the heartbreak of a divorce and think, how did this happen? The kids, they suffer, and you see this. The Bible doesn't hide from sin. It tells you the truth. I think what we can learn here is that the eighth point of genuine repentance, genuine repentance is not perfectionism. It's a continuous way of life. It's not perfectionism. It's a continuous way of life. And we see in Nehemiah 9, guess what else is happening? Mixed marriages, Nehemiah 9. James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. If any man does not stumble in what he says, he, he's, he's lost. We stumble. We all stumble. The last point I'll say, and it's not in the text, but it's all throughout Scripture when we read it, is genuine repentance is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. So if you're feeling this weight of going, ah, oh, I can't do this. Well, of course you can't do this. It's a gift of God. 2 Timothy 2, it talks about the servant of the Lord should correct his opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps, he doesn't have to, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they will come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being corrupted by him to do his will. You see, at the end of the day, repentance is nothing more and nothing less than the other side of the coin of faith. Faith Trusting in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Repentance, leaving sin as my master, as my God. I'm following Jesus. Not perfectly, of course not, but it's a gift of God. I was in Colorado this past week, and we went to a gun store to get some ammunition um, and uh, met a guy named Blaine. He was all tatted up. Uh, he had a cap on, said, hell 
Let me tell you what. Can I just tell you, in Christian culture, that's called, that's called a slow pitch over the plate. I mean, please tell me. You just go, okay, nice shirt, nice cap. And I said, interesting cap, uh, as we were buying some, some, some of the ammunition. And I said, what's that about? And he said, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a club or something to that effect. And I said, but yeah, you don't want to go to the real place. He goes, no, no, I'm good, I'm good. You're good. That's another slow pitch, by the way. <laughs> and so I said, really, you're good, you're a good guy. Yeah, yeah, I'm a good guy. I said, can I test you on it? Sure. So I said, well, how about this one? You ever lied before? Yeah, what do you call someone who lies? A liar. Okay. You ever stolen anything, something small? Yes. What would you call that person? A thief. Okay, how about this one? Jesus says, if you look at a woman of lust, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you, ever, have you ever done that? Yeah. I said, okay, by your very words, you're a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart. We've only gone through three of the Ten Commandments. Do you think you're good? And I, I, first thing I do is I jump right in the boat with him. I said, i guilty of all and more. And he said, uh, well, I mean, I said, are you innocent or guilty on the day of judgment? He said, no, I, you don't understand. I don't, I don't believe, I think I'm just going to go to the earth. I'm Native American, and I'm just going to go to the earth one day. And I said, and then I said, but what about your sin? And at that point, he said, well, I grew up in a Christian home. Oh, okay, you went to Christian school? Yes, I did. And I said, okay, well, you give me the gospel because you, you've heard that before. Why don't you give it to me? Just I'm wondering what's your view. It's grace, he said. It's grace. I said, well, it is grace. Unpackage that a little bit because he was enjoying this. I mean, dialogue, strangely enough. Some people do. Don't run from these, folks. So he said, well, it's just, um, I don't know. You tell me. So I was able to go through the gospel and, and talk about Jesus Christ. And he knew all about him, but the what point what he was standing on is he was standing on James 2.19. Even the demons believe and suffer. He believed in Jesus, but he didn't want to leave his sin. That was the thing. And so because of that, he came up with a whole new mindset. I guess we don't have to report to God one day. We just go straight to the ground. And so I quoted Romans, no, Proverbs 14.12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end it leads to death. I said, man, I don't want you to wake up one of these days in hell, the real place. I said, I would encourage you, the Bible actually says that there is a payment for sin. What was I getting to, by the way? I was getting to Romans 2. It's important for you to know when you talk to unbelievers, the conscience they're born with. They're born with it. They know the heart, the, their heart basically, is law is written on their hearts. Their conscience afflicts them. If you're wondering, why in the world would we ever have gay marriage in our country? Why were they so pushing for gay marriage? Many of these unbelievers, and many of them, some of them have become believers, and that's amazing. It's because you want to codify what you do. You want, to, you want your conscience to lay off. That's one of many reasons. I'm sorry, I digress. But the point of it is, is that repentance is just part of salvation, if you've never come to the place that you, you believe in Jesus, but you never feel bad about your sin, then my encouragement to you is that examine yourselves, 2 Corinthians 13 says, to see if you're really in the faith. You might have a faith of demons. And if you're a believer today, 
with mixed marriages, it's worth me closing with this. Don't date an unbeliever. Come on now. And some of you may be doing that even now. 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? You're a temple of the living God. Get out of that relationship. Witness to him, but get out. And if you're a believer, should you separate from your mixed marriage? No. 1 Corinthians 7 makes it clear. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she consents to live with him. Stay put. Do not divorce her. And the same with any woman who has a husband who's an unbeliever. If he consents to live with her, stay put. Allowed divorce is only in cases of adultery, although reconciliation is preferred and desertion by an unbeliever. If he just takes off, she takes off. Last thing, it will always cost you to be faithful to the word of God. It will always cost you. But what you don't see is that cost pays dividends in heaven and in the future. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Lord, help us to be people that would follow the word. I pray for somebody in here, some folks in here that have not yet come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Grant them faith and repentance. Replace the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. And for us that have believed, Lord, help us to be about uh, the work of the Savior. And much of that work is just comes in the form of starting to live lives of repentance. Lord, help us to uh, start getting in your word. There's so many folks here perhaps that are just getting the word on Sunday morning. They're emaciated. Lord, please put it in their hearts that they would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and would love your word as they love you, as you love them. In your son's name we pray it, amen.